Hello, everyone. In the organized crime world that I was forced to be in against my will at the age of five, I was exposed to objectification, which is the act of treating people as objects and as things worthy of thinghood. In the organized crime world that I was forced in, I was exposed to dehumanization, which is the act of disavowing the humanity of others. In the organized crime world that I was in, I was exposed to sexual objectification, which is the act of treating people as mere objects of sexual desires. In the organized crime world that I was in, I was exposed to self-objectification, which is the objectification of oneself. In the organized crime world that I was in, I was exposed to social relationships objectification, also known as reification. In other words, I was exposed to the objectification of social relationships as discussed as reification within organized crime. I was exposed to self-dehumanization, the act of disavowing the humanity of oneself. I was exposed to self-sexual objectification, which is the act of treating oneself as a mere object of sexual desires. I was exposed to the self-objectification of one's social relationships, which is discussed as self-reification. The other things that I was exposed to in organized crime was instrumentality, treating people as tools for others' purposes. I was exposed to denial of autonomy, treating people as lacking in autonomy and self-determination. I was exposed to inertness, treating people as lacking in agency and activity. I was exposed to fungibility, treating people as interchangeable with parentheses other objects. I was exposed to violability, treating people as lacking in boundary integrity and violable as some things that are permissible to break up, smash, break into. I was exposed to ownership, treating people as though they could be owned, bought, and sold, such as slavery. I was exposed to denial of subjectivity, treating people as though there's no need for concern for their experiences and their feelings. I was exposed to reduction to body, the treatment of people to identify with their bodies and body parts. I was exposed to reduction to appearance, the treatment of people primarily in terms of how they look and how they appear to the senses. 
I was exposed to silencing, the treatment of people as if they are silent, lacking the, compa- lacking the capacity to speak. I was exposed to self-instrumentality, treating oneself as a tool for others' purposes. I was exposed to self-denial of autonomy, treating oneself as lacking in autonomy and self-determination. I was exposed to self-inertness, treating oneself as lacking in agency and activity. I was exposed to self-fungibility, treating oneself as interchangeable with parentheses other objects. I was exposed to self-violability, treating oneself as lacking in boundary, integrity, and viable as a self, something of an item that is permissible to break up, smash, break into. I was exposed to the warped version of self-ownership, treating oneself as though oneself can be owned, bought, and sold such as slavery. I was exposed to self-denial of subjectivity, treating oneself as though there's no need for concern for oneself's experiences and oneself's feelings. I was exposed to self-reduction to body. The treatment of oneself is identified with oneself's bodies and oneself's body parts. I was exposed to self-reduction to appearance. The treatment of oneself, primarily in terms of how oneself looks and how oneself appears to the senses. I was exposed to self-silencing. The treatment of oneself as if oneself is silent lacking the capacity to speak. I was exposed to sexual dehumanization, the act of the act of sexually disavowing the sexual humanity of others. I was exposed to the sexual objectification of sexual social relationships as discussed as sexual reification. I was exposed to sexual instrumentality, sexually treating people as a sexual tool for others' purposes. I was exposed to sexual denial of sexual autonomy. Sexually treating people as lacking in sexual autonomy and sexual self 
self-determination. I was exposed to sexual inertness. Sexually treating people as lacking in sexual agency and sexual activity. I was exposed to sexual fungibility. Sexually treating people as sexually interchangeable with parentheses other sexual objects. I was exposed to sexual violability. Sexually treating people as lacking in sexual boundary integrity and sexually violable as some things that are as sexually some things that are sexually permissible to sexually break up, sexually smash, and sexually break into. I was exposed to the warped version of sexual ownership, sexually treating people as though they can be sexually owned, sexually bought, and sexually sold, such as sexual slavery. I was exposed to sexual denial of subjectivity, sexually treating people as, there, as though there's no sexual need for sexual concern for their sexual experiences and sexual feelings. I was exposed to sexual reduction to body. The sexual treatment of people as identified with their full bodies and their entire body parts. I was exposed to sexual reduction to appearance. The sexual treatment of people primarily in terms of how they physically look and how they physically appear to the senses. I was exposed to sexual silencing. The sexual treatment of people as if they are sexually silent sexually lacking the sexual capacity to sexually speak. I do remember in the organized crime world that there were people that had cordiality of interactions with my Brewer family who live in Southwest Washington, D.C. And they would become outwardly elated whenever they spoke about how my Brewer family were straight A-plus students, uh, community activists, and civic participation. And that they were bookworms and kind-hearted citizens and um, I 
how they were campaigning for Washington, D.C. city council members, some of them back in the days. And how basically they have a history of influencing local commerce, local law, and local politics. Um, I'm saying what they said in educated ways. They put street lingos to everything I'm saying in an educated way. Also, what I remember was that in that world they also would ask about my family in street lingo ways after I told them that Wayne Perry lived in the same neighborhood as them and that's when they started speaking highly of my family in the outwardly related ways I told you about earlier At the time, I did not know what Wayne Perry did to one of my uncles, and I told y'all that story. Um, I but I always wanted to ask, did they ever have any interactions with him? I assumed they did live in the same neighborhood, and what my dad told me confirmed everything I, I needed to know. think about this in street lingo ways I remember there were customers who would buy tobacco smoking products from me. they would ask me in street lingo ways to purchase packs of cigarettes and um, you know bags of cigars and packages of of tobacco smoking pipes. They would hand me the money. I would hand them the tobacco smoking products. And I did not know at the time that they were using me to fuel their nicotine addiction. Um, 
I do remember growing up in that type of world. I just felt as if that I wasn't being a good grandson and son to my grandma Claire who I saw as my mother. I never got to tell her in life everything that I'm saying to you all in these episodes. And a part of me is always hopeful that she's listening to the episodes, even though she's no longer with us. That's my child, me, feeling that way. Because I felt as if I did not have a good start with Christianity because the same time I was exposed to Jesus of the Bible was the same time that that I felt like I was being exposed to Satan of the Bible. I... I assumed that organized crime is of Satan and what my grandma was teaching me in terms of humane enlightenment was of Jesus. Um, I felt like at the time that Satan was inhabiting my mother's apartment and that where my grandma Clara lived was God's house that God allowed humans to live in to borrow. So I felt like God's house was better than Satan's apartment. That's exactly how I felt as a child. That's exactly how I was made to feel like as a child. And another thing that I got to learn was um, as I have been studying interpretations of Yahweh, God, and being just studious of what the biblical writers attributed to thus said Yahweh again meaning God I came to the conclusion that 
the concept of God is not fully comprehensible, not fully understandable, not fully understandable. The mysteries of the concept of God are fully embraced by me enthusiastically. And I also recognize that the Bible writers, and I take no pleasure in saying anything I'm saying, the Bible writers presented God as harmful. The Bible writers presented God as injurious. The Bible writers presented God as detrimental. The Bible writers presented God as hurtful. The Bible writers presented God as noxious. The Bible writers presented God as evil. The Bible writers presented God as mischievous. The Bible writers presented God as ruinous. The God, um, the Bible writers presented God as adverse. The Bible writers presented God as sinister. The Bible writers presented God as subversive. The Bible writers presented God as incendiary. The Bible writers presented God as virulent. The Bible writers presented God as cataclysmic. The Bible writers presented God as corroding. The Bible writers presented God as toxic. The Bible writers presented God as baleful. The Bible writers presented God as painful. The Bible writers presented God as wounding. The Bible writers presented God as crippling. The Bible writers presented God as bad. The Bible writers presented God as malicious. The Bible writers presented God as malignant. The Bible writers presented God as sinful. The Bible writers presented God as pernicious. The Bible writers presented God as unwholesome. The Bible writers presented God as corrupting. The Bible writers presented God as menacing. The Bible writers presented God as dire. The Bible writers presented God as prejudicial. The Bible writers presented God as damaging. The Bible writers presented God as corrupt. The Bible writers presented God as vicious. The Bible writers presented God as insidious. The Bible writers presented God as treacherous. The Bible writers presented God as catastrophic. The Bible writers presented God as disastrous. The Bible writers presented God as wild. The Bible writers presented God as murderous. The Bible writers presented God as destructive. 
The byproduct is presented God as unhealthy. The byproduct is presented God as killings upon killings from that said God. The byproduct is presented God as fatal. The byproduct is presented God as fatal attraction. The Bible writers presented God as mortal. The Bible writers presented God as overly serious. The Bible writers presented God as dangerous. The Bible writers presented God as fraught with evil. The Bible writers presented God as doing harm. The Bible writers presented God as doing evil. The Bible writers presented God as sore. The Bible writers presented God as distressing. The byproduct is presented God as diabolic. The byproduct is presented God as brutal. The byproduct is presented God as unhealthful. The byproduct is presented God as satanic. The byproduct is presented God as grievous. The byproduct is presented God as lethal. The byproduct is presented God as venomous. The byproduct is presented God as cruel. The byproduct is presented God as unfortunate. The byproduct is presented God as disadvantageous. The byproduct is presented God as felonious. The byproduct is presented God as objectionable. The byproduct is presented God as fiendish. The byproduct is presented God as unlucky. The byproduct is presented God as malign. The byproduct is presented God as devilish. And the byproduct is presented God as corrosive. How I came to those conclusions also is in the Old Testament. I see God committing objectification. I see God committing dehumanization. I see God committing sexual objectification. I see God committing self-objectification. I see God committing reification. I see God committing self-sexual objectification. I see God committing sexualification and sexual self-reification. I see God committing self-dehumanization. And again, I see God is committing self-sexual objectification. I see God committing sexual instrumentality. I see God committing sexual denial of autonomy. I see God committing sexual inertness. I 
see God committing self-fungibility. I see God committing sexual violability. I see God committing the warped version of sexual ownership. I see God committing sexual denial of subjectivity. I see God committing sexual reduction to body. I see God committing sexual reduction to appearance. I see God committing sexual silencing. And you want to know where in the Old Testament I got these concepts from? Read the entire chapters of Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23. I see God committing instrumentality. I see God committing denial of autonomy. I see God committing inertness. I see God committing fungibility. I see God committing violability. I see God committing the warped version of ownership. I see God committing denial of subjectivity. I see God committing reduction of body. I see God committing reduction to appearance. I see God committing silencing. You want to know how I came to those conclusions? Read the entire books of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Genesis. I see God committing self-instrumentality. I see God committing self-denial of autonomy. I see God committing self-inertness. I see God committing self-fungibility. I see God committing self-violability. I see God committing the warped version of self-ownership. I see God committing self-denial of subjectivity. I see God committing self-reduction to body. I see God committing self-reduction to appearance, and I see God committing self-silencing. You want to want to know where I got those conclusions from? Read all the books that is confirmed that Paul wrote in the New Testament. And it pains me to come to those conclusions. Because who likes to think of a deity that is said to exist according to the Bible writers in any of those ways? I know I don't. The Bible writers presented God as a God who has a hatred 
humans and a hatred for non-humans. That's exactly how the Bible writers depicted Yahweh. And other things that I have noticed that has disturbed me about what the Bible writer said about God is that the Bible writers depicted God as having a hatred for kindness. An abhorrence for benevolence, a loathing for hospitality, a rancor for gentleness, a detestation for tenderness, an antipathy for affection. A repugnance for goodwill. A repulsion for thoughtfulness. A disgust for sympathy. A contempt for empathy. An intense dislike for compassion. A scorn for decency. An abomination for selflessness. A distaste for care. A disapproval of concern. A horror for neighborliness. Having hard feelings for for courtesy. A displeasure for graciousness. An ill will against mercifulness, a bitterness for friendliness, an antagonism for humanitarianism, an animosity towards charitableness. A peak, P-I-K-U-E, for consideration. A grudge against politeness. A malice. For love, a malevolence against generosity, a revulsion for niceness, a prejudice against pleasantness. Feeling spiked about cordiality, 
wanting to exact revenge against justice, feeling hate towards equitableness, feeling venom against a lack of corruption. Feeling envy towards respect. Feeling spleen against truth. Feeling coldness towards trustworthiness. Feeling hostility towards respectability. Feeling alienation against integrity. Feeling bad blood against patience. Feeling a chip on one's shoulder. Against wholesomeness. Feeling anger towards nourishment. Feeling a devotion to pure evil, feeling a friendship with rudeness, and feeling affection for disrespectfulness. That is exactly how the Bible writers depicted God. within the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Bible writers depict God as demonic and poisonous. The Bible writers is misbetrayals and misdepictions of God are tiresome, wearisome, fearsome, irksome, burdensome, troublesome, and worrisome. Within my psyche, I'm going to be using a vivid imagination of how God or a God should be. I like to call it the human rights God. A God who protects everyone. A God who keeps everyone safe. A God who keeps everyone from harm. A God who safeguards everyone.
a God who shelters everyone, a God who secures everyone, a God who cares about everyone, a God who takes care of everyone, a God who looks after everyone, a God who cares for everyone, a God who fortifies everyone, a God who defends everyone. And a God who gives sacrificial love to everyone, a God who gives unconditional love to everyone. A God who gives compassionate love to everyone. A God who gives agape love to everyone. A God who gives neighborly love to everyone. A God who gives friendship love to everyone. A God who gives family love to everyone. A God who gives empathic love and empathetic love to everyone. That's what the human rights for all God should consist of. Now I want to talk to you about within organized crime why so many people were scared of me and feared me within the streets within the organized crime syndicates. They wrongly assumed that I was a crime boss. They wrongly assumed that I was a crime lord. They wrongly assumed that I was a don. They wrongly assumed that I was a gang lord. They wrongly assumed that I was a gang boss. They wrongly assumed that I was a mob boss. They wrongly assumed that I was a kingpin. They wrongly assumed that I was a godfather. They wrongly assumed I was a crime mentor, and they wrongly assumed that I was a criminal mastermind. They wrongly assumed that I was 
in charge of crime families. They wrongly assumed that I was a robber. They wrongly assumed that I was a stick-up kid. They wrongly assumed that I was a killer. And they wrongly assumed that I would commit crimes for money. They wrongly assumed that I was a drug lord. They wrongly assumed that I was a drug baron. They wrongly assumed that I was a narco trafficker. I've been I've never been any of these things. Never have been, never will be. That's why a lot of people chose to stay away from me because they wrongly assumed that I was all those traits. forced to do crimes. I never did a crime willingly. And remember, I was five years of age. has to be understood. I'm choosing to spend the rest of my life doing my best to keep other people. From organized crime. also want to say is is that and I don't like to report this 
but I have to. I'm gonna tell you more of what happened to me in that world. Drug lords have begun breaking the large cartels into much smaller organizations. That is a hard fact. In so doing, they decrease the number of people involved and shrink their roles as targets, most likely in an attempt to avoid the fate of their predecessors. That is a hard fact. With newer technology, drug lords are able to manage their operations more effectively from behind the scenes, even behind the confines of prisons. Some of them keeping themselves out of the spotlight and off the FBI DEA wanted list. Those are hard facts. When I say hard facts, I'm telling you what I saw. I knew criminals who were on FBI DEA wanted lists. I knew criminals were able to evade those wanted lists. These smaller cartels are slowly proven to be safer and more profitable for those involved. Those are hard facts. None of these things are good things. It gets worse. Drug lords often have de facto control over the governments and locations they operate in through bribery, corruption, obstruction of justice, intimidation, contract killings, and narco-terrorism. Those are hard facts. They may also control or influence civilian populations through violence and slasher by winning hearts and minds. Those are hard facts. Um, there are some drug lords that are both known that there are some drug lords that are known for controlling and influencing the civilian populations of their territories through using both methods. Those are hard facts. This phenomenon is common in countries with weak and slasher corrupt governments which lack rule of law. Those are hard facts. In narco states, corrupt politicians and drug lords have symbiotic relationships. Those are hard facts. Drug lords benefit from political corruption by contributing donations to political campaigns and slasher by colluding with political candidates to rig elections in their favors through vote buying and slasher voter intimidation. Those are hard facts. I'm telling you what I witnessed when I was a child. Um, after such candidates are elected, they use their power to grant a certain level of impunity to the drug lords who support, who support them. Those are hard facts. This is an example that I remember the Mexican drug cartels, um, not Mexican drug cartels, but um, this is a more recent example because, okay, Juan Orlando Hernandez, president of Honduras from 2014 to 2022, okay, this is way after organized crime in my life. Okay, here's a recent example of what I'm talking about. For example, Juan Orlando Hernandez protected drug cartels who contributed donations to his presidential campaign from criminal investigations, prosecutions, arrests, and convictions after he was elected as the president of Honduras. 
none of this is worth glorifying. While in office, the aforementioned politicians may also solicit or accept bribes from the drug lords to grant them an even higher level of impunity. None of this is worth glorifying. In some cases, corrupt politicians in office who lack any previous ties to the drug lords may also solicit or accept bribes from them. None of this is worth glorifying. It is also common for drug lords to intimidate, threaten, blackmail, assassinate politicians who reject their political donations slash or bribes. None of this is worth glorifying. I've seen these type of things happen in the Mexican drug cartel world I was forced to be in. Um, there were other politicians that the Mexican drug cartels um, told me about who... They were safe from any legal kind of scrutiny because of the politicians who protected the drug cartels. I'm not talking about Juan Orlando Hernandez in this case. I'm talking about other politicians. They told me so many stories. They showed me pictures of the cartels with these politicians. So everything I'm reading to you, I personally saw evidence of these things. Um... And everything I'm reading to you actually happened in my life. Um, drug lords also take advantage of drug lords also take advantage of police corruption, judicial corruption, prosecutorial corruption, and military corruption through bribery, especially if the drug lords already possess a certain level of impunity granted by corrupt politicians. I was forced to see all those things. For example, if a drug lord has strong ties to a corrupt politician in office, they can ask them to fire a police chief who refuses to accept the drug lords' bribes and to appoint a new one who is corruptible. I was forced to see these things. This, this simple appointment facilitates the drug lord's ability to not only bribe police officers, but to also deeply infiltrate a police force from top to bottom. I was forced to see all these things. A drug lord who has enough influence over a corrupt police force can also use the police to target rivals in the illegal drug trade. I was forced to see all these things. Corrupt politicians in office can also appoint corruptible judges, corruptible prosecutors, and corruptible military officers whom the drug lords can also bribe. I was forced to see all these things. It is common for drug lords to use violence or intimidation as an additional tool for controlling or influencing members of law enforcement agencies. I was forced to see all these things. Okay, I'll give an example that actually happened in real life. For example, Pablo Escobar was known for using a carrot and stick approach by offering lead or silver to Colombian police officers, judges, prosecutors, and military personnel. Um, I saw something similar. It wasn't, in in my real life, it wasn't Pablo Escobar, but the same tactics were used. It was just unnamed politicians that the Mexican drug cartels were cool with. Just like I knew unnamed politicians that the Mexican drug cartels that were cool with that protected drug cartels who, because the Mexican drug cartels 
contributed donations to political campaigns, which means that the drug cartel, Mexican drug cartels, were protected by the uh, unnamed politicians from um, criminal investigations, prosecutions, arrests, and convictions. That did happen. I, I actually saw these corrupt politi- these corrupt um, law enforcement officials and um, corrupt politicians meet with the Mexican drug cartels. I actually saw this. Then it says a drug lord with strong ties to corrupt politician office is also more likely to be able to get away with committing such acts of violence. I was forced to see all those things. In some cases, corrupt politicians in office may collude with drug lords to commit acts of violence or intimidation against members of law enforcement agencies who investigate or prosecute political corruption to prevent said politicians in office from being charged, prosecuted, arrested, and slash or convicted for corruption. I personally saw all these things. Um, one of the most notorious examples of the treatment given to drug lords is the incarceration of Escobar. Although Escobar was, after turning himself in, jailed for his participation in drug trafficking in Colombia, the quote-unquote jail in which he was captive was a million-dollar palace built with his own funds and guarded by his own private army. Another famous crime lord who enjoyed lightened Jail life was Al Capone, who continued to run his business from his jail cell, which contained tables, chairs, a bed, flowers, and paintings. For drug lords of the past, jail often served as a way to avoid further persecution. Now, did I know drug lords who did exactly what Al Capone did, especially in terms of running criminality from their jail cells? and having it cozy and swanky in jail, yeah, they tended to be the Mexican drug cartels. They did that much more often than the mafia did. And did I know drug drug lords who used their illegal and immoral sense of quote-unquote wealth to be guarded, protected, and to have it Big Willie style, even though they're incarcerated. Yeah. The drug lords in the Mexican drug cartel world, they copycatted Pablo Escobar and Al Capone because criminals duplicate each other. Oh, you was able to um, flaunt your assets even though you're locked up? I want to do exactly that, but I'm going to make sure... I'm better at not getting caught than you. I'm going to learn from you getting caught so I don't get caught. That's exactly what I was forced to see. Then it says, In Mexico, after the arrest of Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, there was a rise in the rate of violence. So when new drug lords, old drug, when new drug lords take over or old drug lords remain, but you basically have co-drug lords, all murders will, you know, murders will rise, violence will rise, sex crimes will rise, theft crimes will rise, financial crimes will rise, and all types of crimes will rise in terms of rates, R-E-T-S. 
Felix was particularly known for his use of nonviolence to keep his business running smooth and had bribed many political authorities for protecting himself and his business. I knew other drug lords who did exactly what Felix did. Some drug lords go, okay, I want to make my money, but I don't want to be known for being a vicious maniac. So I'm going to be the warped version of peace, love, and happiness. And I'll just use my wicked income to trick people who are supposed to be uh, punishing me legally and helping me to be punished legally into protecting me illegally and immorally. That way, me and my business will always be traumatically profitable. I knew drug lords who did exactly that. Then it says he divided his territory and the remaining members of his organization formed other cartels. I knew drug Mexican drug cartels who did exactly that. Again, criminality, there's no originality to criminality. Criminals make each other heroes. Criminals hero worship other criminals. They just learn to not get prosecuted. Because, oh, I'm going to study how you were prosecuted, and that's going to keep me from being prosecuted. Then it says, he kept in contact with the drug lords, remained one of, waned as one of Mexico's major traffickers until he was transferred to Al Teplano Maximum Security Prison. That does happen. You know, I've seen, like, drug lords get together. And... They have a sickening and revolting sense of riding high, criminalistically speaking, until authorities say, all right, we're going to put you in criminal, we're going to put you in jails that house the most notorious criminals. That does happen. Eventually, the cartels fought each other for territory and led to brutal drug wars, which caused thousands of deaths, so... As I was leaving the organized crime world, the cartels started violently and murderously attacking each other. That was happening in the last few weeks of my time of organized crime. That was one of the reasons why I was pushed out of organized crime. Had I stayed longer, I may not be here. And I don't like saying that at all. Um, I don't even like saying that shit at all. Like I said... (sighs) Motherfuckers are fucked up. Shit just got real shit hit the fan. Shit like shit. I 
In developing countries, it is still common for drug lords to control local and regional governments, although this phenomenon is not as common as it was in the past. I knew drug lords who had that same reality. Um, For example, Ismael El Mayo Zambada currently holds de facto control over the Mexican state of Durango by contributing donations to political campaigns during gubernatorial elections along with assassinating political candidates who reject his whose donations and through bribing and intimidating the Durango State Police. As of early 2023, he has never been arrested or incarcerated. I knew drug lords who controlled aspects of of Mexico. Did they kill um, those running for office who didn't take their money or accept them as donors? Yes, they did. Did they bribe and intimidate law enforcement officials and governmental officials? Yes, they did. Did they give money to their um, public office campaigns? They did. Some got arrested, some got incarcerated, some didn't get arrested, some didn't get incarcerated. In developed countries, drug lords seldom control local and regional governments, having less, having less influence over their surroundings and their ability to continue to run their business from jail. I knew, I knew of drug lords who had that same reality. Unlike developing countries, developed countries have stronger rule of law and do not suffer from nearly as much corruption. I saw that against my will. Hence, it is difficult for drug lords to operate in developed countries such as the United States or Canada in modern times. That's very true. However, it is still relatively easy for drug lords to operate in developing countries such as Colombia, Venezuela, Mexico, and Brazil in modern times. I hate the fact that that fucked up ass shit is true. We're talking about developed countries and developing countries, okay? Thus, it is still common for drug lords and drug cartels to operate with certain levels of impunity in developing countries, especially Latin American countries. Sadly, I know that to be a case, as a matter of fact. Another trend... Um, that has been emerging the last decade is a willingness of local authorities to cooperate with foreign nations, most most notably the U.S., in an effort to apprehend and incarcerate drug lords. What the hell? Why the fuck is that even a fact? This is some rough ass shit that I have to tell y'all. This is another hard ass fact about my life. In our modern in our modern times, countries have been more willing to extradite their drug lords to face charges in other countries 
an act that not only benefits them directly, but also gives them favor foreign governments. It pisses me off that I was forced to see all this shit. There's a term for them called conceited bastards. That's what the fuck I call them. Mexico extradited 63 drug dealers to the U.S. in 2006. However, extradition... Of course, extradited. Okay, that's what the word is called, extradited. However, extradition may be prohibited if the person faces either death penalty or a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Because in their mind, look, you'll never get out of prison or legally... We will stop you from breathing ever again. Um, Then it says, nevertheless, such efforts have failed to curb the rise of new drug wars because of widespread corruption in foreign countries, especially Latin American countries. There's so much crock of shit, so much dog shit, so much horse shit. In this society, in this global world. Sadly, that's a reality. Today, there are also many drug lords in Latin America who have never been extradited and continue to operate with impunity. Meaning, they can be as evil as they want to be. And not enough people give a fuck. to ruin their lives legally speaking following the death of Pablo Escobar in 1993 significant changes occurred in the structure of the drug trade departing from massive cartels such as Juan David Ocoa's Medellin cartel that is something that the Mexican drug cartels did mention to me about that Okay, a drug lord, drug baron, kingpin, or narco-trafficker is a high-ranking crime boss who controls a sizable network of people involved in the illegal drug trade. Such figures are often difficult to bring to justice as they are normally not directly in possession of something illegal but are insulated from the actual trade in drugs by several layers of staff. The prosecution of drug lords is therefore usually the result of carefully planned infiltration into the networks often using informants from within the organizations. So organized crime is full of and filled with cruelty, inhumanity, barbarity, savageness, barbarousness, inconsiderateness, the bad type of toughness, the bad type of sternness, unfeelingness, the bad type of harshness, spitefulness, vitriol, callousness, savagery, brutality, mercilessness, hard-heartedness, severity of the bad type, unkindliness, meanness, virulence, virulence, hatefulness, heartlessness, unkindness, ruthlessness, brutishness, pitilessness, Thoughtlessness, insensitivity, 
cold-bloodedness, malevolence, grimness, maliciousness, indifference, hostility, animosity, cold-heartedness, antipathy, dislike, inhumaneness, unconcern, disinterest, coldness, hatred, hindrance, you know, the worst kinds of hindrances, the worst kinds of obstacles, the worst kinds of hurdles, worst kinds of impediments and the worst kinds of interference. A crime boss, also known as a crime lord, don, gang lord, gang boss, mob boss, kingpin, godfather, crime mentor, criminal mastermind, is a person in charge of a criminal organization. None of this is celebratory. A crime boss typically has absolute, nearly absolute control over the other members of the organization. It's often greatly feared or respected for their cunning, strategy and slasher, ruthlessness and willingness to take lives to exert their influence and profits from the criminal endeavors in which the organization engages. None of this is celebratory. Some groups may only have as little as two ranks as crime, a crime boss and their soldiers. Other groups have a more complex structure organization with many ranks, and structure may vary with cultural background. Organized crime enterprises originating in Sicily differ in structure from those in mainline Italy. American groups may be structured differently from their European counterparts in Latino African American gangs, often have structures that vary from European gangs. The size of the criminal organization is also important as regional or national gangs have gangs have much more complex hierarchies. So, this is the last part of organized crime I'll tell you about. The Boston and Sicilian, Sicilian and Italian-American mafia is that it's a crime family and the top decision maker. Only the boss, underboss, or consigliere can initiate and associate into the family, allowing them to become a made man. The boss can promote or demote family members at will and has the sole power to sanction murders inside and outside the family. If the boss is incarcerated or incapacitated, he, sh- he usually retains the title of boss, but may appoint an acting boss who is responsible for running the crime family in his stead or on a more daily basis. In addition to quote-unquote boss and quote-unquote acting boss, some families have at times officially or unofficially utilized the positions of front boss and street boss. A quote-unquote front boss is generally put into place to act ostensibly as the boss while drawing police attention away from the actual official boss operating behind the scenes. 
A Coco Street boss is often informally appointed or regarded by the official boss or by subordinates as the quote unquote hands on street level actively engaged proxy or standing for the official boss, usually coordinating, controlling, and managing street operations on the behalf of an official boss who prefers to stay behind the scenes, either by choice or to avoid police scrutiny. Street bosses are often particularly influential or powerful kapoor regimes or underbosses, and the term is sometimes used interchangeably with acting boss or front boss, depending on the circumstances. When a boss dies, the crime family members choose a new boss from inside the organization. I despise all of this wickedness. I despise all this villain villainy too. Um A crime family is a unit of organized crime syndicate, particularly an Italian organized crime, especially in Sicilian Mafia and Italian American Mafia, often operating within a specific geographic territory or specific set of activities. In the strictest sense, a family or clan is a criminal gang operating either on a unitary basis or as an organized collection of smaller gangs, sample cells, factions, crews, etc. In turn, a family could be a quote-unquote sole enterprise or part of a larger syndicate or cartel. Despite the name, most crime families are generally not based on or are formed around actual familiar connections, although they do tend to be ethnically based and many members may in fact be related to one another. Uh... Uh, oof, I'm just reading to you about my life as a five-year-old child. Uh, and so, yeah, the street gangs, street crews, motorcycle gangs, and prison gangs. People, a lot of people wrongly assumed I was in charge of all of them because of me being the most talked about in terms of the crime world, but I was never in charge of any um, organized crime syndicate at all. Drug cartels are a criminal organization with the intention of supplying drug trafficking operations. They range from loosely managed agreements among various drug traffickers to formalize commercial enterprises. The terms apply when the largest trafficking organizations reached an agreement to coordinate the production and distribution. The terms also used to refer to any criminal narcotics related organization. Um, so I'm just reading to you what these are. Um, so. So, and that was, um, those were parts of my life that made me weep, made me feel anguish, 
make me feel angst, make me feel depression, make me feel anxiety, make me feel worry, make me feel fear, make me feel terrorized, make me feel horrified, make me feel shocked, make me feel unpleasantly surprised. Um, made me feel inadequacy, made me feel insecurity, made me feel endangered, and made me feel hated, made me feel unloved, made me feel disliked, made me feel despised, and it made me feel detested. Um, Now I'm going to talk to you about sex and I'll conclude the episode about sex. After I quickly tell you that the Mexican drug cartels did um, personally tell me that there was CIA drug trafficking so they made allegations of CIA drug trafficking in other words they accused the United States Central Intelligence Agency of involvement in drug trafficking with them um, and they even said that there was CIA involvement in contra cocaine trafficking with them. evidence to vouch for any of these things, but that is what they told me. crime world was filled with um, horophobia um, horophobia or horror is the hatred of oppression of violence towards discrimination and sex workers and by extension derision or disgust toward activities or attire related to sex work. Treating sex workers with suspicion, disgust, extreme violence, and erasing their experiences as a long history. All these things I was forced to see against my will, by the way. 
Sex workers are used to being a scapegoat to being shunned even by those who claim to stand up for women. Um, I saw those things against my will as well. And yes, sex workers' rights are human rights. Sex work is real work, is what I say. And um, rape culture, I was forced against my will within organized crime too. Um, now I can talk to you about sex and then I'll actually conclude for real this time. Wait, one more thing, then I'll get to sex after I'm finished. Rape culture is a setting studied by several sociological theories in which rape is pervasive and normalized due to societal attitudes about gender and sexuality. Favors commonly associated with rape culture include victim blaming, victim shaming, victim gaming, slut shaming, sex shaming, crude shaming, kink shaming, consent shaming, sexual objectification, trivializing rape, denial of widespread rape, refusal to acknowledge the harm caused by sexual violence or some combination of these, all the combinations of these, I would say, because I was forced to see all these things when I was a child against my will. It has been used to describe and explain behavior within social groups, including prison, rape, and conflict areas where war rape is used in psychological warfare. Entire societies have been alleged to be rape cultures. So these are all the things I saw against my will with an organized crime. Now let's get to the sex once and for all. And no interruptions, no interference this time. This is how the fuck we're going to conclude, damn it. I decided to limit my sex partners in small amounts when it comes to on-screen meaning porn and off-screen meaning my everyday life because I'm extraordinary in an ordinary world. Very few people can enjoy extraordinariness without being crushed by overwhelmment, overwhelmingness, and overwhelmedness. Most people don't know how to respond well to extraordinariness, which means that most people respond incorrectly to extraordinariness, so... My sex partners will be slimmer than slim to none. I'm talking about quantity. I'm not talking about body types. I just also figured that um, most of the people who would be interested in me even sexually would be intellectually unavailable to me, um, psychologically unavailable to me, emotionally unavailable to me, um, 
spiritually unavailable to me, internally unavailable to me. Um, And they would be interpersonally unavailable to me as well. Because a lot of times when you're an extraordinary person, even the vultures and the vipers want to jump on the bandwagon. Even those with untreated mental health issues want to jump on the bandwagon. And even those who are easily starstruck and easily impressed want to jump on a bandwagon. They all want to be on the same bandwagon called me. That's why even though I do have a sky-high sex drive for the most part, which at times, on occasion, is a mountain-high sex drive, I've decided that I will not partake in every sexual opportunity. Most sexual opportunities I have to turn down on camera and off camera. Which means that I have to spend more time having wet dreams, erotic dreams, and sex dreams and nocturnal emissions more than actually having sex. I have to spend more time self-pleasuring and masturbating more than having sex. And I have to spend more time viewing ethical erotica more than actually having ethical erotica to behave on my own with my own sex life. And which means that I have to spend more time sleeping in bed than actually having relations on a bed. That also means that I have to spend more time thinking about sex and actually having it. I have to spend more time daydreaming about sex and actually having it. That those are the costs I'm willing to pay for being an extraordinary person. Um, to clear it up even more, most people on camera and off camera would have no understanding of how to on how to receive me and how to give to me. Um, There are people who have toxic traits and there are people with trauma complexes. I dare say untreated trauma complexes and untreated toxic traits. 
And there's a lot of people out there like that. So they would want to jump on the bandwagon. Those who are uh, creepily possessive. I'm not talking about the good kind of possessive. I'm talking about the, the, the scary movie type of possessive. You got those people out there. And then you have those people who are the game the whole world lose their soul types. They want to jump on the bandwagon. And then you have the materialistic and the greedy. They want to jump on the bandwagon. And then you have personality disordered individuals who have been untreated. They want to jump on the bandwagon. You have those with psychiatric disorders untreated. They want to jump on the bandwagon. And those with disorders all under the DSM-5 that are untreated, they too want to jump on the bandwagon. So those are other reasons why I'm keeping my sex partners to a minimum small because also it's hard for an extraordinary person like myself um, to have a thriving sex life because um, most people fail to apply all the good character traits to sex and extraordinary people like myself does exactly what the fuck we do that's exactly what the hell we do and I'm so grateful that I understand that I don't want any sexual crumbs or any sexual leftovers. I don't want any sexual rotten milk. I don't want any sexual cracked eggs. I don't even want any sexual mouse traps, even with the mice cheese on it. I am a sexual full course meal. Um, I am the sexual entree and I'm the sexual appetizers, I'm the sexual desserts, I'm the sexual drinks. All these metaphors apply to the fact that I'm an extraordinary person. I'm a sexually extraordinary person too. I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm not Mr. Goody Two Shoes. I'm not uppity at all. These are all truths of my life, and these are all facts about my life. People who heal, 
people who heal themselves every day like I do only want to have sex with people who heal themselves every day too.